Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Whitney Humanities Center at Yale University presents a lecture by Steven Pinker entitled, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. This is the first of two events constituting the inaugural lecture of the Frankie Program in Science and the Humanities. Believe it or not, and I know most people do not, violence has been in decline for long stretches of time, and today we may be living in the most peaceful era in our species' existence. The decline of violence has not been steady, it has not brought rates of violence down to zero, and it is not guaranteed to continue. But I hope to persuade you that it is a persistent historical development, visible on scales from millennia to years, from wars and genocides to the treatment of children and animals. I'm going to walk you through six major historical declines of violence, try to identify their immediate causes, that is, particular historical events of the era preceding the decline, and then try to tie them together in terms of their ultimate causes, namely general historical forces interacting with human nature. The first decline of violence I call the pacification process. Until around 6,000 years ago, humans everywhere lived in anarchy without central government. What was life like in this state of nature? Well, this is a question that thinkers have pondered for centuries. In 1651, Thomas Hobbes famously wrote that in a state of anarchy, the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. A century later, Jean-Jacques Rousseau countered that nothing can be more gentle than man in his primitive state. Well, both of these gentlemen were uh, speculating from the armchair. Neither of them had any idea what life was like in a, a state of nature. But today we can do better because there are two sources of evidence on rates of violence in non-state societies. One of them is forensic archaeology. You can think of this as CSI Paleolithic. Namely, what proportion of prehistoric skeletons show signs of violent trauma, such as bashed-in skulls, decapitations, bones with arrowheads embedded in them, or mummies found with ropes around their necks. Uh, here we have uh, 21 uh, examples that I've been able to find in the literature plotted as percentage of deaths uh, from violent trauma. And they span quite a range from zero to almost 60%, but they average out to 15%. 15% of prehistoric skeletons in these samples show signs of violent trauma. Let's compare that 15% figure to those for deaths in warfare from uh, some modern state societies, such as the United States and Europe in the 20th century, which comes in at 7 tenths of 1%, uh, including all of the casualties from both world wars. The world in the 20th century, aggregating the deaths, both direct and indirect, from wars and the genocides and the man-made famines, you can get the rate up to about 3%. And here is the graph for the world in the 21st century. The bar is invisible because it's less than one pixel high, coming in at a rate of three one-hundredths of 1%. The other <coughs> method of estimating violence in non-state societies comes from ethnographic vital statistics. The wave of state control that swept over the world starting about 6,000 years ago left a few pockets of the world still in a state of anarchy, namely hunter-gatherer, hunter-horticulturalist, and uh, other tribal societies. 
and ethnographers who have lived with them for extended periods of time have tallied their rates of death from various causes, including warfare. I found uh, 27 estimates from the literature, and once again, they span quite a range. I've plotted them using the conventional statistic for estimating rate of uh, death, namely uh, deaths per 100,000 uh, per year. Um, they, the, they span quite a range, but they average out to 524 per 100,000 per year. That is, every year, about one half of 1% of the population dies in warfare. Let's compare that 524 figure to those of some modern state societies, and I'll stack the deck against modernity by picking some of the most violent states in their most violent eras, such as Germany in the 20th century with its two world wars, which comes in at a rate of 144. Russia in the 20th century, two world wars and a civil war with 135. Japan in the 20th century, a world war that ended in not one but two nuclear strikes with 27. The United States in the 20th century, two world wars and at least half a dozen other foreign wars with a uh, rate of 5.6. Here's the world in the 20th century, and this is the biggest estimate that you can uh, assemble by aggregating the direct and indirect deaths from war and the genocides and the man-made famines, which comes out to a rate of about 60. And here's the world in the year, in the uh, 21st century. Again, the graph is less than one pixel high, coming in at a rate of three, uh, three hundredths of a uh, war death per, per 100,000 per year. So not to put too fine a point on it, but when it comes to life in a state of nature, Hobbes was much closer to the truth than Rousseau. The immediate cause was the rise and expansion of states, giving rise to the various paxes that history students read about, the Pax Romana, Pax Islamica, Pax Hispanica, and so on. Generally, when states exert control over a territory, they try to stamp out tribal raiding and feuding, not because they have a benevolent interest in the welfare of their subjects, but rather because tribal raiding and feuding are a nuisance to the imperial overlords, who just as soon keep the people alive to supply them with soldiers and slaves and taxes. So just as a farmer has a selfish interest in preventing his livestock from killing each other, doesn't do him any good, uh, so the first kings and emperors tried to put an end to the nuisance of tribal raiding and feuding. The second historical decline of violence can be appreciated by examining this woodcut showing a, a day in the life in the Middle Ages. And the uh, process that brought this mayhem under control has been called the civilizing process. In many parts of Europe, homicide statistics go back uh, 800 years, and historical criminologists have plotted them over time. Here we have a number of estimates from the year 1200 to the year 2000, plotted on a logarithmic scale from a tenth of a homicide per year to 1 to 10 to 100. And as you can see, there's been a massive decline in the rate of homicide in England, such that a contemporary Englishman has about 1 35th the chance of being murdered as his medieval ancestor. This is true not just in England, but in every country for which uh, data go back that far. Here we see Italy, the Netherlands, Germany, and Switzerland, and Scandinavia. Here is the average of those five regions. Uh, and for the sake of comparison, I've also plotted that 524 per 100,000 per year figure from the non-state societies. So more or less, this gap is what I've been calling the pacification process, this further decline, the civilizing process. 
The immediate cause was uh, first hypothesized by the German sociologist Norbert Elias in his book, The Civilizing Process, in which he suggested that in the transition from the Middle Ages to modernity, there was a consolidation of central states and kingdoms from the medieval patchwork of principalities and baronies and duchies. With it, criminal justice was nationalized, and the constant feuding and brigandage and warlording of the medieval knights came under the control of the king's justice. Also during this era, there was a growing infrastructure of commerce, of financial instruments like money and contracts that could be recognized within the boundaries of the newly consolidated states, and technical improvements in the infrastructure of trade, like better roads and carts and instruments of timekeeping. As a result, zero-sum plunder began to give way to positive-sum trade, a point that I'll return to later in the lecture. The third decline of violence can be appreciated by uh, re recalling some of the ways that the early states kept law and order within their borders, namely sadistic forms of corporal punishment, such as breaking on the wheel, burning at the stake, clawing with iron hooks, sawing in half, and impalement. But in a process that's been called the humanitarian revolution, there was a wave of abolitions of the use of torture as a form of criminal punishment. Centered in the second half of the 18th century, uh, a wave in which country after country uh, abolished the use of torture for punishment, including our own prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment in the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, which took place right in the middle of this historical process. Also abolished during the humanitarian revolution was the profligate use of the death penalty for non-lethal crimes. In 18th century England, there were 222 capital offenses on the books, including poaching, counterfeiting, robbing a rabbit warren, being in the company of gypsies, and strong evidence of malice in a child 7 to 14 years of age. Uh, by 1861, the number of capital crimes had been reduced to four. Likewise, in 17th and 18th century America, the uh, death penalty was used for theft, sodomy, bestiality, adultery, witchcraft, concealing birth, slave revolt, and counterfeiting. This graph shows the percentage of American executions for crimes other than murder from 1650 to the present. Uh, it shows that in the early centuries of uh, the colonial and uh, era in the Republic, a majority of executions were for crimes other than murder. Nowadays, the only crime other than murder that is uh, punishable by death is conspiracy to commit murder. The death penalty itself, of course, has been abolished in uh, every Western democracy but the United States. Here we have a timeline showing the number of European countries with capital punishment from 1775 to the present. Most of the abolitions were in the 20th century. But the blue graph that shows the number of European countries that actually carry out executions shows that well before European politicians got around to striking capital punishment from the law books, their countries had lo actually lost their taste for executing people. And on average, 50 years elapsed between the formal abolition of capital punishment and the last time that a European country actually executed someone. Now, I mentioned that the United States is an exception to this trend, or I should say that uh, 32 of the 50 states are uh, exceptions. But even in the United States, the uh, death penalty is a shadow of its former self. 
This graph shows the number of American executions per capita from 1640 to the present. And it shows there's been a massive decline in the rate of executions. Nowadays, about 40 Americans every year are put to death in a country that has more than 16,000 homicides each year. Also abolished during the humanitarian revolution were witch hunts, religious persecution, like burning heretics, dueling among men of honor, blood sports, debtors' prisons, and most famously of all, slavery. Slavery used to be legal everywhere on the planet. Every major civilization uh, practiced it. No one seemed to think there was anything particularly wrong with it. The, the Bible had no problem with it. Democratic Athens was a slaveholding society. But starting in the 18th century, a trickle of countries started to abolish slavery, which set off a wave that eventually swept over the entire world, culminating with the abolition of slavery in uh, Saudi Arabia and Yemen in 1962, and Mauritania in 1980, meaning that we've been living through three decades in which, for the first time in history, slavery has been illegal everywhere on Earth. What were the immediate causes of the humanitarian revolution? One might guess that it was the uh, advances in um, affluence that led people to live longer, healthier, and more pleasant lives. Perhaps as your own life becomes more pleasant, you put a higher value on life in general, including the lives of others. Unfortunately, the timing doesn't work. Because if you look at the growth of affluence in uh, England, you see that the most of the uh, advance took place in the 19th century with the advent of the Industrial Revolution. And it was pretty much flat during the 18th century when most of the humanitarian reforms were launched. Uh, I think a uh, more plausible hypothesis is the uh, rise of printing and literacy. This graph shows that prior to the 18th century, there was a 25-fold increase in the efficiency of manufacturing a book, the only industry that showed a substantial increase in productivity prior to the Industrial Revolution. This graph shows that this technology was put into practice, and in the 18th century, there was an exponential increase in the number of books published per decade, a kind of early version of Moore's Law. Uh, and this graph shows that in the, it was the 18th century in which, for the first time in history, a majority of Englishmen could read those books, namely, were literate. Why should literacy matter? Well, one reason uh, can be uh, derived from the other name for this era, namely the Enlightenment. It was the time at which knowledge began to replace superstition and ignorance. And if you have a literate and educated populace that's less likely to believe in uh, nonsense, such as that Jews poison wells, heretics go to hell, crop failures are caused by witches, children are possessed by the devil, which has to be beaten out of them, Africans are brutish and fit only for slavery, and so on, it's bound to undermine many rationales for institutionalized violence. Uh, as Voltaire said during this era, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Also, literacy is a technology of cosmopolitanism, of the mixing of people and ideas. And it's plausible that as people start to consume more fiction and drama and history and journalism, they uh, start to inhabit other people's minds, to wonder what life is like uh, if you're some other person, which could plausibly expand their circle of empathy and decrease their taste for cruelty. And that, too, is a, 
a point that I'll return to later in the lecture. The fourth decline of violence uh, has been called the long peace, and it speaks to the frequently made assertion that the 20th century was the most violent in history. An assertion which, as far as I can tell, is always made with reference to the 20th century alone, which it means that it is a putative trend based on one data point. And it is uh, highly dubious. Uh, for one thing, if you look at the so-called peaceful 19th century, which is often held up as uh, an uh, unfavorable comparison with the 20th, you see that it had uh, among other things, the Napoleonic Wars, one of the most destructive wars in European history with four million deaths. The Taiping Rebellion in China, the most lethal civil war in history with 20 million deaths. The most destructive war in American history, the American Civil War with 650,000. The conquests of Shaka Zulu in southern Africa, which killed one to two million people. The, in South America, the War of the Triple Alliance, perhaps the most proportionally deadly interstate war in history, which uh, may have killed 60% of the population of Paraguay, and African slave raiding wars and imperial wars in Africa, Asia, and, South Pacific, and the South Pacific, whose death tolls uh, no one has even tried to estimate. Also, though it's undoubtedly true that the Second World War was the single deadliest event in human history in terms of the absolute number of people who died, it's not as clear that it is the worst event in terms of the percentage of the world's population at the time that was killed. Um, here we have a graph of data that come from uh, the world's leading atrocitologist, uh, Matthew White, in his, uh, and it, it comes from his list of the 100 worst things that people have ever done to each other. And I've scaled them by the population of the world at the time. They run from 500 BC to 2000 CE. And as you can see, history's worst atrocities were pretty evenly sprinkled over 2,500 years of human history. Uh, and uh, among the worst, World War I doesn't even make the top 10, and World War II comes in at ninth place. Now, you can certainly notice that there is a change over time. There's a funneling downward of the data cloud as you get to the 20th century. Presumably, that does not mean that recently we've, uh, that in ancient times they committed only really big atrocities, and more recently we've been committing big and medium sized and small atrocities. But more plausibly, it's a reflection of the historical record. The closer you get to the present, the better the records are, the more likely it was that someone actually noticed when atroci an atrocity took place, uh, giving us records that survive to the present. If we zoom in on the last 500 years, the, after the invention of the printing press, during which uh, period during which um, uh, the, the records are substantially better, we can look at trends in at least one category of war uh, that, are, that are reasonably complete. And these are great power wars. This is a data set that comes from uh, Jack Levy. And uh, the great powers are the half a dozen or so largest states or empires uh, in existence at a given period, the 800-pound gorillas that can project military force beyond their own borders. And because of the statistical distribution of wars, the wars that the great powers get involved in uh, account for a majority of the deaths from all wars of all sizes combined. And of course, these are the wars that are unlikely to have been missed by the historians of the day. So over the last 500 years, we see the proportion of years in which the great powers fought each other. 
And what it shows is that several hundred years ago, the graph keeps bumping the ceiling at 100%. Basically, the great powers were always fighting each other. That's just what great powers did. Uh, more recently, the great powers have hardly ever fought each other. Here we have the duration of wars involving a great power, which also shows a decline. History used to have things like the 30 years war and the 80 years war. The 20th century had the six day war. Here we have the frequency of wars involving a great power. And over the last 500 years, great powers have been uh, uh, picking fights less and less often. But there is one statistic that went in the opposite direction during most of this span. And that is, once a great power did start a war, how many people was it able to kill per country per year? And that figure, unfortunately, uh, went in the opposite direction. Wars got deadlier and deadlier until the Second World War, in which that statistic also uh, started to go down. It did a U-turn. So for the last two-thirds of a century, we've been living in an era in which the frequency of great power wars, the duration of great power wars, and the deadliness of great power wars have all been going down. If you multiply those out to tally up the total rate of death uh, from great power wars, you get a zigzag um, pattern, but one whose lowest point in 500 years corresponds to the last quarter of the 20th century. For the, la the 20th century, we can zoom in yet again because the data get still more complete and look at the rate of deaths in wars of all size, sizes. And what it shows us is that there were two unmistakable spikes of bloodshed corresponding to the eras of the two world wars. But that since then, the line has started to bump along the floor. And in fact, we are now in the 21st century living in an unprecedented era with a low rate of death in warfare. This is the era that historians have called the, the uh, long peace. The term comes from uh, John Gaddis. Uh, and it refers to the fact that since the end of the Second World War, there's been a historically unprecedented decline in interstate war. The most interesting statistic of this period is zero. That uh, represents the number of wars between the two greatest powers of them all, the United States and the Soviet Union, contrary to the prediction of every expert that World War III between them was inevitable. Zero nuclear weapons have been used in war since Nagasaki, again, contradicting every expert who said that, that uh, World War III uh, would be a nuclear war and was simply a matter of time. There have been no wars between any two great powers since the end of the Korean War in 1953. No wars between Western European countries, a fact that uh, some people have to be reminded is uh, noteworthy, because nowadays we're apt to think, well, you know, big deal. Who would ever expect, say, France and Germany to fight a war? But needless to say, this is a historically unusual state of affairs. Prior to 1945, Western European countries alone uh, got involved in two new wars a year for 600 years. That's 1,200 wars. As of 1945, that went to zero. And there have been no wars between developed countries. The 40 or so countries with the highest GDP uh, per capita have not met each other on the battlefield. Another fact that sounds completely boring and banal, given what we've gotten used to, but is highly unusual. We, we now think of wars as things that take place in those poor backward parts of the world. But for most of uh, great power history, it was the big rich countries that were 
constantly at each other's throats. And because they could afford big, powerful armies, it was the big, rich countries that could do the most damage. Well, what about a, a genocide? It is sometimes claimed that uh, the 20th century was the age of genocide and that more people died in the 20th century from uh, genocide than from war itself. Now, uh, again, this is a claim that, uh, of a trend over time that is based on one data point. And as far as I can tell, every history of genocide contradicts it. Um, I'm going to read to you from one of them. Uh, by uh, Frank Chalk and Kurt uh, Jonasson, The History of Genocide, but uh, an identical conclusion may be found in the book of uh, Professor Ben Kiernan uh, here at Yale, uh, Blood and Soil. Uh, Chalk and Jonasson begin their book as follows. Genocide has been practiced in all regions of the world and during all periods in history. We know that in ancient times, empires have disappeared and that cities were destroyed, but we do not know what happened to the bulk of the populations involved in these events. Their fate was simply too unimportant. When they were mentioned at all, they were usually lumped together with the herds of oxen, sheep, and other livestock. Looking at the available evidence from antiquity, one might develop a hypothesis that most wars at that time were genocidal in their character. Well, what do they have in mind? Let's just take the Bible, which, uh, where the Hebrew Bible has one genocide after another. Uh, commanded by God, in which the Israelites were told to put to the sword every last member of the Amalekites, Amorites, Canaanites, Hivites, Hittites, Jebusites, and so on. Now, fortunately, it is very unlikely that these genocides actually took place. Uh, but nonetheless, the uh, stories do reflect an attitude, which is that genocide was an excellent thing. More historically accurate uh, were the, the slaughter of the inhabitants of uh, Milos by Athens, of uh, the Romans in Carthage, the Mongol invasions, the Crusades, the European wars of religion, and uh, many instance episodes in the colonization of the Americas, Africa, and Australia. Well, what about the 20th century? Uh, uh, what was the trajectory of genocide in the 20th century, a period for which our data are certainly more complete? And is it true, as is often said, that the recent genocides in Bosnia and Rwanda prove that the world has learned nothing from the Holocaust and that nothing has changed? Well, here we have a, uh, two estimates of the trajectory of genocide in the 20th century. Uh, and it shows that there is, again, uh, an unmistakable, uh, horrific spike in bloodletting in the middle decades of the 20th century, but it is absolutely not the case that, uh, that nothing has changed since then. There has been a, a bumpy but unmistakable decline, even with the uh, genocides in Rwanda and uh, Bosnia, the uh, downward trend is unmistakable. Well, um, what about the rest of the world? Uh, I've talked about uh, great powers, I've talked about Western Europe, I've talked about developed countries. But in a process that I call the new peace, the long peace is starting to spread to the rest of the world. As I mentioned, since 1946, there have been fewer interstate wars, that is, wars with a government on each side. There have, however, been more civil wars. Uh, as newly independent states with inept governments defended themselves against insurgent movements, both sides uh, armed, financed, and egged on by the Cold War superpowers. However, after the Cold War, civil wars went into decline too. Let me just show you the, that, uh, these trends. Uh, here we have a graph that simply counts the number of wars in each year, where for the 
by the definition used in this, these, these graphs, a war is an armed conflict with a government on at least one side that kills as few as 25 people in a given year. This is a stacked layer graph in which the thickness of each layer corresponds to the number of wars, and the height of the entire stack uh, shows the sum of all wars in each category combined. First category are colonial wars, and the, those wars went to zero as European empires divested themselves of their colonies. Here we have the number of interstate wars, country against country. Here we have the number of pure civil wars and internationalized civil wars, where some third party, an external country, butts in uh, into a civil war. And uh, it shows that the number of civil wars did increase beginning in the 1960s. But then as of the end of the Cold War, the number of civil wars and the number of uh, the sum of all categories of war uh, declined. The crucial question, though, is what kind of war kills more people? The interstate wars that have been going out of fashion or the civil wars that showed that, uh, that huge increase in the 60s prior to the decline in the 1990s? And this graph provides the answer to that question. First, I've plotted the rate of death from the interstate wars, country against country, in each decade since the 1950s, and that has been uh, plummeting. Here we have the rate of death from internationalized civil wars and pure civil wars. And what it shows is that a typical civil war kills a fraction of the number of people killed in the old-fashioned interstate wars. There's nothing like a pair of countries bombing each other's cities, amassing huge formations of tanks, uh, chucking artillery shells at each other to rack up really high death counts in a hurry. If we now combine the, these two statistics, how many wars were there, how many people killed per year of war, uh, we get the following stack layer graph. Here we have the rate of deaths uh, in colonial wars, which tapered off to zero in the mid-1970s. The rate of death in interstate wars, uh, which shows a spiky but very clear downward trend with uh, spikes corresponding to the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the Iran-Iraq War. And here we have the rate of death from pure civil wars and internationalized civil wars. Uh, here we are in the 21st century with a thin laminate of layers showing that the rate of death from wars of all kinds is at a historic low. What were the immediate causes of the long peace and the new peace? Well, three of them were identified two centuries ago by Immanuel Kant in his essay, Perpetual Peace, in which he argued that democracy, trade, and an international community all worked to disincentivize leaders of countries from dragging their uh, people into war. More recently, uh, Bruce Russett here at Yale and his collaborator John O'Neill have tested Kant's hypotheses quantitatively and have shown that all three of these factors increased in the second half of the 20th century, and all of them are statistical predictors of peace, uh, holding all else constant. Here we see from uh, the end of the Second World War to the present the number of autocracies and the number of democracies, and it shows that the world has far more democracies than autocracies. Here we have the rate of international trade, which skyrocketed after the end of the Second World War. And here we have the typical, the number of memberships in intergovernmental organizations, which was increasing throughout the 20th century, but then showed an acceleration after World War II. 
Finally, there are the rights revolutions, the targeting of violence on smaller scales directed against vulnerable sectors of the population, such as African Americans, women, children, homosexuals, and animals. The civil rights revolution put an end to the practice of lynching, in which uh, at the end of the 19th century, 150 African Americans were lynched every year. That's three a week. By the 1950s, that had fallen to zero. Hate crime murders of blacks, which were first tallied by the FBI in the 1990s, were never very plentiful to begin with, about five a year, but even that figure has gone down to about one a year. Non-lethal hate crimes against blacks, such as intimidation and assault, have been in decline. And the kind of racist attitudes that would license violence against African Americans have been in steady decline. Here we have uh, graphs from two different questions from public opinion polls, which asked white Americans, do you believe that black and white students should go to separate schools? And if a black family moved in next door, would you move out? In the 1940s, a majority of Americans believed in school segregation. By the 1990s, uh, the percentage of racist attitudes had fallen to uh, into the range of crank opinion, a couple of percentage points, and the questions are no longer even included in the general social survey. This is, uh, can be seen not just in the United States, but worldwide. Here's a graph that shows the number of countries that have laws on their books that discriminate against ethnic minorities, various apartheid and Jim Crow-like laws. The blue line shows the number of countries that do the opposite, that bend over backwards to favor their disadvantaged minorities with affirmative action policies. And we're now living in an age in which more countries have laws that favor their disadvantaged minorities than discriminate against them. The women's rights revolution has uh, brought about an 80% reduction in the rate of rape since statistics were first kept in the 1970s. A similarly dramatic uh, decline in rates of domestic violence and uh, also declines in the most extreme form of domestic violence of all, namely axoricide, the murder of uh, female partners, and maridicide, the murder of male uh, partners. The graph shows that, uh, in fact, the rate of decline has been even more dramatic for male victims. The women's movement has been very, very good for husbands. The children's rights revolution has uh, seen a decline in the number of American states that allow corporal punishment in schools, like paddling and strapping. Approval of spanking has been in decline in every Western country, both in uh, rates of approval in public opinion questionnaires and actual practice of spanking by parents. Rates of child abuse have been gone down since statistics were first kept, both physical abuse and sexual abuse. And school violence, kids being picked on in fights and non-fatal crimes have been in decline. The gay rights revolution has seen an increase in the number of states that have decriminalized homosexuality both uh, nation states worldwide and American states, which now stands at 100% thanks to a Supreme Court ruling. Anti-gay attitudes have been in steady decline in the West, such as questions uh, asking, do you think homosexuality is morally wrong, should be uh, criminalized, or whether gay people should be denied equal opportunity. And the anti-gay hate crime of intimidation has been in decline since statistics were first kept. Finally, the animal rights movement has seen a steady decline in hunting. 
an increase in vegetarianism, both in the UK and the US, and a dramatic decline in the number of motion pictures in which animals were harmed. Well, all of these declines now raises the question, why has violence declined on so many scales of time and magnitude? Now, one possibility is that human nature itself has changed and that our uh, violent tendencies have somehow been bred out of us. Well, for a number of reasons, I think this possibility is unlikely. I entertain it in the book, but uh, I don't think there's a lot of evidence for it. Uh, we still see violence in our children. The most violent age of life is uh, two, at which a substantial proportion of children hit, bite, and kick. And play fighting among boys is uh, probably the most robust sex difference in the cross-cultural literature. Uh, Grown-up boys still take a tremendous enjoyment in vicarious violence, such as murder mysteries, Greek tragedies, Shakespearean dramas, video games, hockey, and uh, movies starring a certain ex-governor of California. And then there are surveys of homicidal fantasies. A number of social psychologists have asked uh, samples of people, have you ever fantasized about killing someone you don't like? The, here is the result of one such study, which found that 15% of women and about a third of men frequently fantasize about killing people. <laughs> and about 60% of women and three quarters of men at least occasionally fantasize about killing people. Uh, what does this say about human nature? It says that about 25% of men are liars. A more likely possibility is that human nature is extraordinarily complex and has always comprised both inclinations toward violence and inclinations that counteract them, what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature, and that historical circumstances have increasingly favored our peaceable inclinations. Well, what are the motives for violence? I don't think there is any uh, one such thing as an uh, aggression instinct or a, uh, a violence organ, but that or, uh, humans have a number of distinct reasons to commit acts of violence. One of them is simple exploitation, the harming of a person that happens to be an obstacle on the path to something that you want, resulting in rape, plunder, conquest, and the elimination of rivals. Separate from this is the drive for dominance, the urge among individuals to, as we say, climb the pecking order and become alpha male, and the corresponding drive among groups for ethnic, racial, national, or religious supremacy. Then there's revenge, moralistic violence, in which it is not only considered uh, permissible, but mandatory to harm someone who has committed some sin or infraction, resulting in vendettas, rough justice, and cruel punishments. And then there are utopian ideologies, uh, belief systems that propagate through a social network and can characterize an entire population, such as militant religions, nationalism, Nazism, and communism, which can license violence through a pernicious cost-benefit analysis. Let's say your belief system holds out the prospect of a world that will be infinitely good forever, a utopia. Well. In that case, to bring that kingdom of heaven to earth, you can be as violent as you want, and you're always doing the right thing. You're always, the benefits always outweigh the costs. Also, imagine that you announce your vision of a uh, perfect world, and there are some people who just don't get with the program. They stand in your way. 
Well, they're the only things that are preventing the uh, a world that will be infinitely good forever. How evil are they? Well, you do the math. They are arbitrarily evil. Uh, as the old saying went, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs, um, forgetting the fact that human beings are not eggs. Uh, but leading to the paradoxical result that the most destructive events in human history have been inspired by idealistic uh, utopian ideologies. What do we have on the other side to counteract these violent motives? What are the better angels of our nature? There's self-control, circuitry in the frontal lobe of the brain uh, that allows us to anticipate the consequences of behavior and inhibit violent impulses. There's empathy, <clears throat> the ability to feel others' pain. There's the moral sense, a system of norms and uh, taboos that regulate what is considered acceptable behavior. And then there's reason, cognitive processes that allow us to engage in objective, detached uh, analysis. The final question is, how do we bring the history back with the uh, psychology? Uh, what historical developments bring out our better angels and stay our hands before they can commit acts of bloodshed? One possibility is that Hobbes got it right when he called for a Leviathan, a police and judiciary with a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. A state and judicial system can uh, inhibit violence by, first of all, neutralizing the incentive for exploitative at attack, by imposing penalties on aggression, it would cancel out the anticipated gain uh, of an aggressor. Not only does that deter uh, aggressors, but it reduces the need for preemption, deterrence, and vengeance because not, you know that not only are you uh, penalized for aggression, but so are your neighbors. And so you can calm down. You don't have to be tempted by a preemptive attack to wipe them out before they wipe you out. You don't have to <clears throat> maintain and defend a belligerent macho stance in order to uh, achieve credible deterrence. And of course, you don't have to exact vengeance after the fact. The state will do it for you. By doing so, the state can circumvent the self-serving biases that we know that human beings are uh, prone to. Social psychologists have shown that in any dispute, both sides always believe that their opponent's attacks are unprovoked aggression out of the blue, and their own attacks are justified retaliation after the fact. When you have two sides both convinced that they are on the side of the angels, always thinking that there is still one more score to be settled, that can stoke cycles of revenge and blood feud, which uh, can be nipped in the bud if you outsource uh, vengeance to a disinterested third party. Some historical evidence comes from the pacifying and civilizing effects of states that I mentioned at the outset of the talk, and the fact that you can watch this movie in reverse when states retreat from control over a territory, leaving behind zones of anarchy, which are almost uh, inevitably violent. The American Wild West, failed states, collapsed empires, and contraband economies, such as those in uh, controlled by mafias and street gangs, which can't avail themselves of the dispute apparatus of the state because the activity they're engaged in is illegal in the first place. If you've been cheated in a drug deal, it's not as if you can press a lawsuit. Uh, or if you feel threatened, it's not as if you can dial 911. Instead, your only protection is the credible threat of, uh, of violence. 
A second historical pacifying force has been called gentle commerce. And it comes from the idea that plunder is a zero-sum game. The gain for the uh, plunderer is the loss to the victim. Whereas trade is a positive-sum game, a form of reciprocal altruism, in which, as we say, everybody wins. <clears throat> and over the course of history, as improving technology <clears throat> has allowed the trade of goods and ideas over longer distances, among larger groups of people, and at lower cost, it becomes cheaper to buy things than to steal them, and other people become more valuable to you alive than dead. Uh, a concrete example uh, comes from the uh, often remarked on fact that there is an intense economic rivalry now between the United States and China. Uh, on the other hand, it seems rather unlikely that they would uh, actually fight a war. Um, they uh, make all our stuff. We owe them too much money. Some historical evidence comes from uh, studies, including those by Russett and O'Neill, showing that countries with open economies and a greater dependence on international trade get embroiled in fewer wars, holding all else constant, host fewer civil wars, and uh, are uh, involved in fewer genocides. A third possibility has been called the expanding circle. The term comes from a book uh, by Peter Singer, but the idea goes back to Charles Darwin, namely that humans are equipped by evolution with a sense of empathy. But unfortunately, by default, uh, we apply our sense of empathy to a narrow circle of blood relatives and allies and cute little fuzzy animals. But over the course of history, <clears throat> one can see the circle of empathy expanding to embrace the village, then the clan, the tribe, the nation, other races, both sexes, children, and perhaps someday other species. This just raises the question of what expanded the circle and the technologies of cosmopolitanism are a plausible, uh, <clears throat> a plausible answer. Uh, namely, that the ex expanded availability of travel, uh, consumption of history, literature, drama, and journalism uh, have gotten people into the habit of imagining what life is like from the vantage point of other people. <clears throat> and a number of uh, social psychology experiments have shown that when people are induced to adopt the perspective of a real, or for that matter, a fictitious person, they become more uh, empathic both toward that individual and to the category of people that that individual represents. Some historical evidence comes from the uh, overall pattern that humanitarian reforms are often preceded by new technologies for spreading ideas and sharing experiences. In the 18th century, the humanitarian revolution was preceded by the Republic of Letters, the uh, expansion of literacy and printed discourse. In the 20th century, the long peace and the rights revolution took place in the so-called electronic global village. And though it's uh, too early to know whether the Arab Spring and the color revolutions will have a happy ending, it's often been remarked that they were made possible by the rise of the internet and social media. Finally, there's the escalator of reason. <coughs> The possibility that the expansion of literacy, education, and public discourse have encouraged people to think more abstractly and more universally. Uh, they uh, rise above their parochial vantage point. This makes it harder to privilege their own interests over others. People stand back and recognize the futility of cycles of violence. 
and increasingly see violence as a problem to be solved rather than as a contest to be won. Um, there is evidence for this hypothesis, some of it coming from uh, Professor Paul Bloom here at Yale, but I'll just mention uh, one other kind of evidence, namely that abstract reasoning abilities, as measured by IQ tests, have increased over the course of the 20th century. The so-called Flynn effect, by which IQ scores have increased by uh, three IQ points per decade throughout the 20th century. And other studies have shown that people and societies with higher levels of education and measured intelligence commit fewer violent crimes, cooperate more in experimental games, have more classically liberal attitudes, such as opposition to racism and homophobia, and are more receptive to democracy 10 years down the line. The final question I'll, I'll uh, raise is why all of these forces should be pushing in the same direction. Is it a coincidence? Well, maybe not. The uh, violence is what game theorists have called a social dilemma. Namely, it's always tempting to an aggressor to exploit a victim, but of course it's ruinous to the victim. Since in the long run, victors can become aggressors and vice versa, all parties would be better off if everyone could agree to renounce violence simultaneously. The Human dilemma is, how do you get the other guy to refrain from violence at the same time as you do? Because if you beat your swords into plowshares, but the other guy keeps his as swords, well, you could find yourself at uh, the, the wrong end of an invading army. It's plausible to think that over the course of history, human experience and human ingenuity have gradually chipped away at this problem, just like we've dealt with other scourges of the human condition, like pestilence and hunger. And the common denominator behind these four pacifying forces is, is that all of them work to increase the material, emotional, or cognitive incentives of all parties to avoid violence simultaneously. Whatever the best explanation of the decline of violence turns out to be, I think its implications are profound. For one thing, it calls for a reorientation of our efforts towards violence reduction from a moralistic mindset to an empirical mindset. That is, instead of asking, why is there war, perhaps we should ask, why is there peace? Not just, what are we doing wrong, but what have we been doing right? Because we have been doing something right, and it seems to me to be rather important to try to figure out what exactly it is. Also, I think the decline of violence calls for a reassessment of modernity, of the centuries-long trend that has eroded family, tribe, tradition, and religion, uh, which have given way to individual rights, cosmopolitanism, reason, and science. Now, everyone has to acknowledge that modernity has brought us many gifts. Longer and healthier lives, less ignorance and superstition, richer experiences, but there's always been a current of nostalgia and romanticism that questions the price. Is it worth it if we have to live in the shadow of terrorism, genocide, world wars, and nuclear weapons? If, on the other hand, despite impressions, the long-term trend, though halting and incomplete, is that violence of all kinds is decreasing, I believe it calls for a rehabilitation of the ideals of modernity and progress, and it's certainly a cause for gratitude for the institutions of civilization and enlightenment that have made it possible. Thank you.
The Frankie Program in Science and the Humanities at Yale University was generously endowed by Richard and Barbara Frankie. The program aims to foster communication, mutual understanding, collaborative research, and teaching among diverse disciplines. The preceding lecture by Steven Pinker was the inaugural event and took place in Yale's Whitney Humanities Center on November 1st, 2012.